Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast. If you're just joining us for the first time, we kicked off a challenge a couple of weeks ago to write a novel with Dabble in 60 days. This challenge encompasses the yearly NaNoWriMo challenge while also adding a planning month to the mix. Five writers are going through the process of developing an idea, making a fully formed plot and plan, then executing the writing of a first draft in 60 days. As we prepare for NaNoWriMo, the month where we finish planning our books and get to the drafting, we talked about the final piece of our planning, character motivation. You can have a great setting, develop characters that are unique, but what drives them to do what they do? What do your characters really want in life, and how do you, as the writer, make their journey more difficult? Listen in today as we discuss this. Be sure to join us at storycraft.cafe to join in the writer community that is flourishing there and find your tribe that will help you stay motivated during this event and beyond. And we are live in the Storycraft Cafe. Thanks for joining us again for the Write a Novel in 60 Days with Dabble Challenge. Um, we, uh, Our crew is a little askew tonight um, with, you know, everyone was pulled in different directions with, with prior obligations. But Lauren Moore is here and I am here and we have a very special guest with us uh, tonight, Rick Partlow, who, if you are a follower of the Storycraft Cafe podcast, Rick was a guest on the podcast just last week, I think it was, and we had a great conversation uh, all about, you know, Rick's writing career and what motivates him and and all of that good stuff. Go back and watch that if you haven't yet. And uh, there, there's lots of great nuggets of wisdom in there. But uh, we are here tonight to talk about character motivation. And th- I just realized this morning when I was getting everything set up that this is going to be the last of our planning month uh, meetings and November 1st is Tuesday. And so everyone wow. doing the writing challenge and, you know, the, our writing challenge is dovetailing with, um, with NaNoWriMo, uh, who is a partner of ours, uh, Dabble sponsors NaNoWriMo. Um, and we're happy to do so. Um, but November is crunch time. It's time to get to writing, you know, all the planning and, and all the prep work and all of that stuff is, you know, it, it's over. It's time to get after it. So, uh, you know, we've got one weekend left to start thinking about our novel. And uh, we're going to talk about character motivations, why your characters do what it is that that we love for them to do that we want to read along with. And uh, so Rick was a, a great um, uh, addition to the to the chat tonight. Uh, if if you haven't uh, watched the the previous show that we did with Rick, um, he has published fifty eight novels to date. Oh, not all of them are currently published. I'm sorry. Uh, not all of them are currently published. Uh, Aethon is relaunching like seven of them. 
cool. And two of them haven't ironed out yet. They're coming out soon. So it's, it's more like uh, 49. You can actually read the second. <laughs> okay. You know, 50, 60, who's, who's, <laughs> who's splitting hairs at this point? Um, yeah. So, um, and, and Rick, you write uh, primarily science fiction and, and military sci-fi is, is, is kind of your subgenre of choice. Is that yeah, right? Um, I've, actually, everything that I've published has been science fiction. Most of it's military science fiction, a little bit of space opera thrown in, a few that are kind of a mix of those. Um, I do want to write fantasy at some point, but science fiction pays the bill, so I'm stuck for the moment. <laughs> if if you were to get into fantasy, what would what would be the kind of story you would like to tell? Oh, very traditional Tolkien esque, epic medieval European fantasy with elves and orcs and dragons and all that stuff. Fun. Love it, love it, um, Lauren. You are. Um, you're in the middle of uh, a book that is military sci-fi meets fantasy. Um, yes. How, how does it feel merging those, uh, those genres and, uh, you know, kind of getting to, to write in that mashup kind of world? Exciting, fun, interesting. I was just messaging another author about the books that we're kind of plotting right now. And he said, I really envy you fa fantasy writers. Um, because of the sandbox you get to play in. And I, I just feel really blessed because my uh, my editing career has been in military science fiction. So it's been the space for Marines. It's been the Rangers. Um, I've edited for Doc Spears, and he's a special operations coach, and he has all the details in there. So I've been reading this stuff so intensely, but my love since I was you know a kid has been fantasy. So I get to bring the two together and it's Fun. You know, doing uh, my other podcast author stories that that uh, I've done for nine years now, uh, so many authors that I talk to, no matter what genre they're publishing in, um, they their their hidden love is fantasy and books that they always wanted to write and think that one day might get back around to writing is fantasy. What, what is it about that genre? Because I'm one of those people too. I, I would love to write a Tolkien-esque fantasy. I'm just, I just don't know that I have the right story yet. You know, if yeah. I ever find the story, the hook that I think is just, you know, tremendous, then, then I'm going to run with it. But what do you, what is it about that genre that, that, that endears uh, itself to people so much? I, I don't know. But the one thing I do know is I love coffee and I love sleep incredibly much. But the one book that will keep me up all night long reading yeah. will be a fantasy novel. It's how it happened on multiple occasions. <laughs> and it'll probably happen again. I, I yeah, there's something. I, write, huh? I can tell you why I want to write fantasy. Let's hear it. It's because there's there's so many fantasy series and novels I've read that are so close to being perfect. But I'm like, oh, why did they do that? <laughs> I want to write one where I can go through and make it like exactly the way I want it. You heard it here, folks. Rick Partlow is going to write the perfect <laughs> fantasy. Well, novel. perfect for me. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, right. Like I read uh, when I was a kid, not when I was a kid, like a older teenager, I guess it was. Um, I read the Dragonlance 
books. Yes. Oh yeah. And I loved them, except there's just a couple things that bug me about them. Uh, namely, Tannis and Lorana. I wanted to strangle them both mm-hmm. <laughs> because they were both so stupid. And uh, I'm like, I could really. This could be the my the best fantasy ever written for me. You know, for my yeah. abilities if they did something better with those two characters. So, you know, just one of those things where I keep reading fantasy and I keep thinking, Oh, that's so close to exactly what I want to read. And then the flip side of that is it's so good. All the things that you loved about it for me, I'm like, could I, could I write that? Could I actually put that together? Could I, could I put together a world that complex and that mountain seems so high to climb that that's what's kept me from writing fantasy in the past. But then this challenge came along. <laughs> this challenge and you, Hank, <laughs> threw down the gauntlet. And I knew it was good for me to give it a shot. So I did. Well, somebody had to tell you to put up or. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> well um, that. I'm glad we got into this conversation because um, we're talking about character motivations tonight. So when we're talking about the setting of fantasy or or epic fantasy, kind of specifically, if we're talking about Tolkien-esque fantasy and and more traditional, um, what what is it that motivates a good fantasy character? Um, And is it, uh, well, let me, let me back up because there's, there's, several kind of sub designations in 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 epic fantasy you know is it the the farm boy who who doesn't know he's the chosen one um you know so that character might have a a certain motivation or maybe you know there's uh uh you know a knight who who has to um you know save his kingdom you know and that motivation might be something different um when when you start thinking about fantasies like that what is a, a great character motivation that you think would play across genres? Is there one or does it come down to the specific character and the specific plot that you're dropping them into? Well, I think the one that I want to write and the one I like to read is characters looking for redemption. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's, who is either for themselves or for maybe, you know, like parents or teacher trying to, you know, gain back honor or standing, you know, that they, that they feel like has been stripped away from them. That's my favorite anyway. Mm-hmm. Nice. What, what about you, Lauren? What do you think? That uh, a character, uh, especially main character has to have an internal and an external motivation. So the external motivation is going to be the bad guys coming the end of the world coming, the the apocalypse on the horizon that's going to force them out of their comfort zone, force them from home, force them from the known world, they're familiar, and push them out on the adventure. (laughs) You know, like Bilbo being swept swept out of his out of his uh his hobbit hole, right? The wizard shows up, the dwarves show up. And then he finds out um, that he's late. Okay, so he's running down the pathway because he's late and he doesn't want to be late because he's a people pleaser too. Um, and he's got to get there on time. Um, so all kinds of motivations. So there's that external motivation, but then there's also the internal. And that's where like, yeah, that redemption story is one of the strongest internal motivations a person can have. Right. right? Um, and that's, that's a fire like that can see, get them through. Go ahead. I don't like to see characters who 
do it because, you know, it feels like they're supposed to, you know, they just, they go along with it because this is a fantasy novel and I have to go on the quest. Yeah. You know, I feel like if I've read too many like that, cause there's a lot of, I mean, there's, there's a lot of great fantasy. There's a lot of bad fantasy too. And it seems like a lot of them, they just do it because I'm in a fantasy novel. So I have to go with the wizard. Yeah. Well, there should be something inside, you know, some no. kind of conflict on the inside that uh, can be you know, parallel. I don't know, not necessarily paralleled, but reflected in the bigger journey. And as you face the external conflict, you have to overcome the internal one to get there to the end. Right. It's a synergistic kind of effect. Mm-hmm. Well, Lauren, you brought up the hobbits. Uh, so let's, let's look at the, the book, the Hobbit with, um, uh, with Bilbo and then the Lord of the Rings with Frodo, um, similar minor, minor, <laughs> but, um, a similar um, kind of start to the story, but do Frodo and Bilbo, um, are they motivated by different things? Oh, you yeah, know? definitely. So, and, and what do you think about the difference in, in how Tolkien used each one of them to, to get out of? Because they were, they were both perfectly happy in the Shire, in, in their hobbit hole, and, and most hobbits are perfectly happy in their you know, little corner of the world. So um, what, what motivates them to get out of their comfort zone and then to ultimately take on this great task? It seemed to me that Bilbo let himself believe that he was being motivated out of a sense of obligation, but it really felt like he wanted to do it. He had a thirst for adventure to get away, to get out and do something. And that's why he did it. Whereas Frodo for me felt like, it felt like for him, it was just duty, you know, duty to family. He, he, he seemed like a very serious and uh, responsibility driven character, whereas Bilbo really wanted to have an adventure. Well, yeah, well, the the Hobbits, you know, a child's, a kid story more, right. you know, the, his right. first yeah. reviewer was his own son who gave him like, a glowing review <laughs> for that book. Um, and, and Frodo, has more of that like his adventure side is waking up like you know he's belladonna took's son and the took side's kind of waking up in him um from the start and definitely you know is awake by the end um but frodo on the other hand he he has already all this knowledge from bilbo of what the unfamiliar world is right um he knows about evil he knows he's heard the stories about the spider he's heard the stories about the dragon he knows about the ring He's also seen, you know, his uncle under pressure, you know, the party and stuff. Um, so there's more of um, a, an understanding and an awareness there and also the heaviness of responsibility. I think more like more like an adult feels after they've gone through some things, but they know that they have to bear hardship for the sake of others um, starting now. And, and yeah. that's, that's present there pretty early on in the first book of Lord of the Rings. And there's a lot of those kind of dark, heavier themes that build throughout a much longer trilogy that was written to adults. Well, Rick, you said you hate to see a fantasy where a character is just thrown into a situation and they just go along with it because it's a fantasy novel. What else are you supposed to do? And um, Frodo could have fallen into that trap um 
you know, and on the surface, it, it kind of feels like he's just kind of thrust into the to the adventure and, and doesn't have much control over it. Um, how do you think Tolkien balanced uh, giving him some actual internal motivation instead of just letting him be swept along, uh, you know, with the plot? Well, I think what Lawrence said was true, that he knew all about all this stuff before. And he knew the seriousness of the uh, the whole situation when it came up. So, And like I said, he felt like somebody who was more driven by responsibility. I mean, it felt to me, anyway, that Bilbo was like the crazy uncle who went <laughs> off in adventures and Frodo was the responsible nephew who, you know kept things going and cared about home and the Shire and everything. And he seemed like very driven. Like he was, he was like, a, I don't know. He felt, he felt like a, a very British character. <laughs> <laughs> There's something to be said for fighting for home. Um, you know, a, a lot of military um, sci-fi can, can uh, use that as motivation. Um, Rick, what, what do you start thinking about? Because you've created many, many a character. Um, what do you use to, to get them engaged in the story without just pulling them along into the plot? Um, well, for, for me, I mean, I have an advantage in that, you know, there was actual, there are actual armies and, and battles and wars I can draw from, whereas there's very, there's very few dragons <laughs> and, uh, you know, wizards. So I can look at motivation. You did not say zero dragons and wizards. Did not say you that. Very few. Yeah, yes. You can, never, you can never declare, you know, nothing. But um, I can look at the motivations of soldiers throughout history, you know, and, and how they have changed and, and what stayed the same. And, and, Pretty much, it feels like everything I read, people start out with all kinds of different motivations. They start out with either patriotism or, you know, a sense of duty like that, or they start out rebelling against something, rebelling against their family or, or their position in life. But eventually, they all, be, they all wind up fighting for the men and women on either side of them. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's easier with what I write to come up with a motivation in the end. I mean, I've had, I've had characters that did it because they were really patriotic and I had other characters that were running away from pressure from their family to, to be in the family business and in one that was forced into it, you know, drop trooper. He was, he had to go to war or he was going to get put in punitive hibernation and maybe never wake up again. Um, and he didn't really want to be there and he, only did it because he had no real other choice, but eventually they all, you know, began to realize that they owed their, they owed their effort and their allegiance and their lives to the people around them who they were fighting beside. Is, uh, is patriotism, um, always a, um, how do I say this? Um, is it always a sure thing? Um, you know, if, if you're if you're dealing with um, uh, with a government um, who uh, you know may, maybe a, someone is fighting for this government, um, but the government is not um, 
is not on the side of of, of truth and 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 right. Um, how how can a <laughs> how can a character be motivated to you know that that's maybe a, a different story altogether there where um, someone is is forced to fight for something they don't ultimately believe in that that's a a whole different kind of conflict. Well, um, in what I write, most of what I write anyway, um, the the government is never you know that great, but usually <laughs> you're fighting against. So you're you know, writing truth. You're you're yeah, you're, fighting, <laughs> you're fighting against like an alien race that wants to either wipe out people or you know or or take humans worlds as their own. So there's it's not it's not like you can just let them do it. You're not a lot of this a lot of the books you're not just fighting for the government, they're fighting for basically you know survival. And there's no there was nowhere to run. But you know in in, in several of them um, well, several, a couple of them at least. The government is kind of almost dystopian in a way. Not not dystopian like uh, 1984 literary dystopian, but the government's like uh, autocratic. And if you if you the closer you get to Earth, the less freedom you have, and and people don't like it, and that's why they went out to the colony worlds. And uh, the main characters find themselves fighting not for the government or for earth, but for those people out in the colonies that are just trying to make a life for themselves, you know, and a lot of the times they have to get exposed to that, to the people who are affected by the, the war and, you know, find a reason to fight that doesn't involve just blindly, blind allegiance to their government. Uh, Lauren, have you, you're about to say, I'm sorry. Can I ask Rick about a particular book? Absolutely. Uh, so I edit for Athon Books and Steve for for a while, maybe like a year. I don't know. Um, anytime I ask Steve, like, well, what kind of books are you looking for to add to your catalog? You know, like what, what kind of authors are you looking for? And he kept saying, contact front, contact front, con- get me more contact. Yeah, front. Looking for more contact front. Um, <laughs> which I haven't read. So could since I'm just like, you know, wildly curious about this contact front, like what was the main character's um, motivation? Maybe it could be external or internal that kind of drove that plot forward. Okay, so the main character he goes from Mexico and his, uh, he lived in what was left of, uh, I'm getting the city wrong, but I think it was Juarez. What, what, what's the one that's across from San Diego? I'm having a brain fart. Um, you know, yeah. that, it's, not, it's not Juarez, that's in Texas, but you know what I mean? It's, uh, yes. it's anyway, so there'd been a, there'd been a world war and most of, the Mexican cities were kind of wiped out. So he was living in this, you know, what had become a agricultural society. And a lot of what used to be the government was like gangs and cartels. So his, his family was killed and he wound up running and wound up in the Commonwealth government. And he was an orphan in the system going from one group home to another. And he wound up eventually living in the streets, uh, so he was a street criminal and he did not. Yes. Tijuana. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. He didn't, he did not want to be, you know, in the military. He knew about the war. He thought it was stupid. Uh, he thought that the government was incompetent and they were going to, you know, get a bunch of people killed, but he got, um, 
charged with felony murder because a drug dealer who he had ripped off got killed chasing him. Hmm. Given the choice of joining the military because they were desperate for people or going into punitive hibernation for a hundred years. And nobody had ever woke up from that long. So he didn't know if they just leave him in there or if he'd die. Hmm. So he, he chose going into the Marines and it turned out he was really, really good at it. And basically in the beginning, his motivation is just to stay alive. And he is very distrustful of everybody. He doesn't want to be responsible for anyone. He doesn't like following people, but he'd rather do that than lead them. Hmm. And eventually he is thrown into a position where he is uh, on one of those colony worlds and learns about the other people who are not on earth, who are much closer to the war and feel the effects of it and, and how they are suffering from it. And he gains a motivation in there because he, uh, he meets a guy who is like the first person since his parents who has treated him like family. And he kind of feels like, and he understands also that the people in his, in his platoon and his squad, their family too. And he begins to feel like a, a reason to fight for his family, which is not his blood family, obviously, but you know, the people that he's letting into his life. And that's how it starts. Rick, you are a, um, you're uh, a plotter as we established when, when we talked earlier. Um, do do you work on characters and character motivation as part of your plotting process? Like wh- what do you do to get to know your characters and, and why they're doing what they're doing? It depends on the book. Uh, sometimes I will, basically I start out with a general synopsis of the background and, and what I want to happen. And after that, I come up with the main character. Um, sometimes, I will make little character sketches of all the main and supporting characters. Other times I kind of wing it and I introduce people as they're needed by the plot and I kind of give them their motivation on the fly. It, it depends. Uh, like if it's a, it's a brand new world and I have to invent everything. Usually I will do more detailed character sketches because I'm getting the whole thing set in my head. But if it's a universe I've already created or a series that's already created and I, I've got to come up with a new character, I'll just do it on the fly and uh, maybe come up with a couple of quirks for them. And, uh, you know, main characters, mostly I will give them some motivation when I uh, when I think them up. I don't necessarily write it down, but I have it in mind. Does a character quirk ever turn into something bigger that has has a quirk ever like turned into something that drives the character other than just making them a little odd or giving you something to, to kind of work with as uh you know as as the the writer has, has it ever turned into something more than you anticipated i don't recall but there's so many that's hard to remember uh <laughs> i mean there was a character uh, in the Wholesale Slaughter series, it's the mech series I wrote. There was a character who's the captain of this 
kind of pirate type ship, the freeloader anyway. And I had created him for a totally different series. And I brought him over and his character quirks kind of turned into a motivation. I mean, when I merged them with the new series. But, uh, Didn't you tell me one time that the Wholesale Slaughter series came about because um, you knew someone whose last name was Slaughter and, yeah. and you thought it would, that would be a, a fun kind of pun on their name? Yeah, basically. I think I told you that in the um, interview we just did. Yeah, I, I I couldn't remember if we talked about it then or if we had talked about it years ago, but that I always love that story. Um, Lauren, what have you have you landed on uh, a main character for your story you're working on? Yes, yeah, I've got her. Um, her name is the Baroness, and she's a scientist type. And I was I was trying to think like who is this girlfriend? This scientist kind of reminding me of who's like focused and other people don't really understand her and they think she's a little weird. Um, maybe she reminds me a little my cousin who's awesome and very like she's incredibly intelligent. She's like genius level intelligent. And then I was like, I know she's kind of like bones, bones from that show. You know, she's you know very yeah. focused personality and that, you know, can can put her at odds with other people, um, can make for some humorous uh, situations too, and, and also a very unique voice. So I'm going to kind of use Bones as like a, I don't know, like a North Star sort of thing, or like like a thought, you know, kind of to go in that in that sort of direction of someone who's, you know, can, can be hyper-focused, um, and we'll see where she goes. So what is, uh, what's driving her? What, what, what is her core motivation? Well, so the, the ruin changes people when they come in and it kind of reveals who they are and can sort of give them power. So I knew that was a thing. I also know that the other people on the team refer to her as the Baroness because there's something about her that reminds her of that character from the GI Joe series. Um, and looking up at the GI Joe series, um, that person, she's a badass. She's an agent, um, and for the for Cobra too. So she's kind of on the you know for the villains. Um, she uses deception, and she also sees through other people's deception. Um, uh, she's a person who, I think she's she's Russian originally, um, Anastasia Anastasia, um, and she you know kind of sees the U.S. as the villain. So she's a, a complex, complicated person. Uh, that's not my character. That's not Nick and, and Jason's character. Uh, but there's something about Nick's character that does remind the other Rangers of, of that person. So I was thinking, you know, maybe the ruin is going to reveal that she's a shapeshifter or a doppelganger, something like that. Um, so, you know, if she is one of those kind of like hyper-focused individuals she might, as a person, have trouble putting herself in other people's shoes and kind of understanding where other people are coming from, empathizing with them. So what if you took a character like that who starts getting shape-shifting abilities <laughs> and she doesn't know what's happening? <laughs> She's, you know, like turning into other other people's 
bodies or whatever, or even animals or something. Um, but she's in this situation where her own self is kind of out of control. Like, how is she going to handle that? What is that going to be like for her? What is that going to teach her? You know, at first, it's probably going to be pretty wild. But if she can get a hold on that, then that might help be, you know, a key for helping her to save the day, you know, later on in the story. So that we are koala. A what? We are koala. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I was thinking kind of like Mystique for the from the X-Men or oh. when I look up, you know, Dungeons and Dragons, their lore, you know, doppelgangers, that would be for any woman, you would not want to be turned into a doppelganger and yeah, have have that happening to you. Um and if that was happening to her, then that would be a motivation that you might do anything to stop this process from happening. Right. So, and then that thought kind of unlocked other plot possibilities for me. So, so I was looking at character motivation today. I was thinking about my main character. I was thinking about the villain and it was kind of like the more that I took one step into character, character motivation and wrote down that idea. I looked at my plot and then my plot led me to another piece of the, character motivation and I just kept on adding and adding ideas that bounced off each other between plot motivation or between what's happening in the plot and then what's happening in my character's inner world. If that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, we've talked about what motivates our protagonist. Now let's talk for a minute about what motivates our antagonist. Um, because for for there to be a great story, we need conflict and we could just make mustache twirling evil villains for the sake of having evil villains. Um, but what, what motivates <laughs> a great antagonist, Rick, what you've written lots of great antagonists and, and writing military sci-fi there's that, you know, there's always at least two sides to a conflict. Um, usually both sides think, they're right. Um, that's that's what motivates a great antagonist is they have to think they're the hero, right? And maybe, yeah. and maybe if it's a war, maybe they are in their society. And actually, uh, there have been at least a couple of cases I've I've written antagonists that wound up turning into protagonists because they were they were their own, they were the hero in their own eyes, and when they find out maybe they've misjudged the other people or the situation or in some cases, the situation changes and enemies become allies and they wind up being not that bad, being good people who just happen to be fighting on the other side. Mm -hmm. um, it's harder with um, like with Drop Trooper because it's a first person right. narrative and the enemies are aliens. So it was really hard to make any enemies be main antagonists. They're kind of the faceless background antagonists. So the antagonists wound up having to be people in the military that uh, were, you know, either selfishly or wrongly or just because of their perspective opposed to the antagonist and what he was doing. It came to me this evening that both my protagonist and antagonist have the same internal motivation. Is that workable? Have, of have course. you guys ever, yeah, that I, I would think that that's, uh, if they're both battling for the same thing, that that is kind of the the ultimate struggle, if you will. Well, uh, for instance, 
in wholesale slaughter, um, the leader of the kingdom or whatever government who was opposed to the hero's government mm-hmm. and has been for like a century or two, everybody thinks of him at first as like this out of control, uh, bloodthirsty, um, erratic, you know, autocrat. But as it turns out, you know, when I, when I got closer to him, cause I had introduced characters who were close to him, as it turns out, he, that was all of an act. He was just trying to maintain power because everybody around him was trying to overthrow him. And in reality, he was very patriotic and wanted the best for his country. And he thought that the best thing for his country was opposed to what this other kingdom was. As it turned out, it wasn't because they both had a mutual enemy, but they, mm-hmm. you know, he, when you got to know him, he was not a bad guy. He was putting on an act as out of control because it made people, you know, worry about him and misjudge him. But I, I love that kind of antagonist though, that just like she said, they both have the same motivation. They both are patriotic or they're both um, trying to save their respective families or homes, you know, and they're just doing what they think is right. Yeah. I think about the civil war, like both sides of the civil war were fired up by patriotism. They're fired up by trying to like free the oppressed, you know, on, on different sides. They're, you know, fighting for their family, they're fighting for their nation, they're fighting for their honor. And both the North and the South felt very strongly that way, just to ended up on totally different sides of... Or, you know, even closer, World War One. Great example, yes. Warren. Yeah, World War, World War One. Yeah, World War One. yeah. There wasn't really, I mean, it's not like World War Two. there wasn't really a good guys and bad guys in World War One. It was just different kingdoms that both wanted what each other had and... They both felt like they were being attacked and mm-hmm. both felt like they're in danger. Well, not both. There was like four or five sides, but you know, they, they, they all <clears throat> thought of themselves as good guys. Mm-hmm. And also like the, the soldiers themselves were fighting for their homeland. They're fighting as men because that's what men do, you know, duty, honor. Right. You know, and that's how they went into world war one on both on all of the different sides it's not how they came. Well, it's not how they came out of it. No, of Rick, you mentioned a minute ago um, stories in the first person perspective. Um, how do you properly show the antagonist motivation when you're writing from the first person perspective of your protagonist? It's that's really a difficult. that's that's a trick of of. Moving the camera, if you will. In the first first person book that I wrote, which was Birthright, um, the way I wound up doing was I cheated. I put in between the first person narrative, I put interlude, and then I did a third person narrative with the bad guys to show what was going on because I couldn't think of any other way to keep people interested in the antagonist. And that's the same thing. (laughs) And that was a truly bad bad guy in that book but still i i made him he wasn't so much mustache twirling evil as he just was a cynical guy who had lived in a world where there were no good guys and bad guys and everybody was out for themselves and he was doing what he thought he had to to maintain his position his family's position in the government and in in uh, industry and he was callous and would kill people if he had to, but he was also 
very intelligent and he'd rather use people. He didn't want to kill the main, the, the protagonist. He he knew the guy was deadly and resourceful and intelligent. He wanted him to come work for him. And up till the very end, he's trying to get him to come work for him. And, they, and he almost did. But in spoiler, in the end of the book, there's a government agent that the, is a friend of the protagonist that he's going to kill because she's a government agent and has, you know, been trying to stop him the whole time and has shown she won't be bought off and he can't let it happen. And he's, he would, he was about to, cause he, the, the main, the, the protagonist wasn't, had no, no illusions that the government was any better than this guy, but he, uh, he couldn't let his friend die. And it's the only reason he wound up fighting him in the end. Man. Um, Lauren, what, what are your antagonist motivations? How, how are you exploring the other side? All right. Well, my antagonist is going to be a witch's hut. An evil, cursed witch's hut. Okay. So in book one of The Forgotten Ruin, the rangers, they're, you know, they're they're trying to, they're fighting for their survival and they have to get across this land and a witch owns the land and uh, they come up to the witch and to get across, she's like, you have to go, you have to accept one of my quests when she gets through two of them before they just blow up her and her hut <laughs> and keep going, you know. Um, so, but, but as she's dying in the flames, she says, you don't know what you've done. There were worlds inside my hut, worlds. And I heard that and I'm like, oh, that is fascinating. I want to hear about yeah. those worlds. I want to explore that more. Um, so in the book that I want to write, I want to explore some of the, you know, unexplored uh, mysteries and, and question marks I've got about what this forgotten ruin world is like, what the societies and stuff are like, but especially about this witch's hut that has worlds inside it. Um, so it's not completely destroyed, <laughs> but is out for revenge. So um, the forward operating base Hawthorne is going to be attacked and they're going to find out that it's it's the hut and they have to go on a quest to either cleanse it or destroy the hut or turn it good or something but that will be the villain so it's not going to be a are you going to title are you going to title it the house of evil um <laughs> no but that's very good i like that i like that a lot um no actually i'm hoping to use danger close as the title <laughs> Because that's you know a, a phrase when you're under close you know, danger. Yeah. Being I think that's my con my uh, drop trooper novels. <laughs> <laughs> Greg McGuire um, wrote. Um, he took a similar um, kind of setup with the the Wicked novels, where he's he's telling the the story from the Wicked Witch of the West perspective, yeah. and from Wizard yeah. of Oz, and you know became a big Broadway musical and all this, but started with a book series. And um, he kind of took that perspective, you know, the, the, there were worlds, you know, kind mm -hmm. of, you know, well, what were they, you know, and then kind of looked into what, what motivated that antagonist and, and spun that into a whole series that, you know, spawned all kinds of stuff um, by kind of flipping that antagonist to the protagonist point of view, I guess. 
Right. Yeah. Like once you got a little foothold in an idea, in an idea, you start asking, well, how did we get here and why and what more? And you start like kind of opening doors and, and rifling through drawers and stuff to find yeah. more clues and you come up with more and more. Um, so like for, for fantasy, I've got all these fairy tale lores from the past to kind of pull from. Like it's an old trope to go up to a witch and a witch gives you a task, right? Or, or a riddle right. to kind yeah. of get through. And um, in in the past, a lot of the, the people who actually survive a witch's riddle were able to turn it on, on its head. Um, so that's one possibility for me. Um, there's also like, witches usually have a familiar and there wasn't one in the story. So where's the familiar? Maybe answering that question could give me another plot point and yeah. following that can give me a clue and give me an idea. To um, make it something really cool, like not just a raven or a cat, make it like something like a, a dire wolf or something. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then like, well, so I get, a, if I get a familiar and I find the familiar and I, I bring it back, maybe that could be part of how I'm able to um, take control of the hut again. And then which of my characters would be able to interact with that familiar? You know, is it going to be my main character? Is it going to be a side character or is it going to be like an unlooked for overlooked kind of person? Um, thinking about uh, antagonist and um, I was thinking about fantasy in particular. And if we look at Lord of the Rings, like we did earlier when we were talking about Frodo and, 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 um, Bilbo, um, the antagonist, you've got Sauron, mm -hmm. um, who his motivation in the Lord of the Rings is never really clear other than he's just evil. Um, now, some of his sub bad guys we start seeing like in Saruman and stuff like that. There's uh, I feel like Saruman was really the, the, the main focus of the. As, as the bad guy, He's, he wasn't the main. I think Sauron was more like Satan in the background, corrupting everything. Right. Saruman was like, it's kind the of the puppet movie. on the on on the string, so yeah. to speak. Um, what do you think about the way that Tolkien set up the the antagonist, and and could that same structure work in a book today? You know, there there's a lot of things that we love about some classic fantasy, in particular, and science fiction for that matter. Um, that might not work in today's market. Um, what do you think about that? So, are, where you're, what you're saying is, Sauron's motivations aren't explicitly spelled out. Like we do know that he wants the ring; it's his ring. He's yes. trying to reconnect with his ring that he created to be able right. to get this kind of ultimate power on, yeah. on Middle Earth. Well, well so and, we and let, me, let me give you. Let me give a little it. caveat is that we don't really know much about Sauron's motivation in the Lord of the Rings. We we learn more about it in the appendices right. and in the Silmarillion. There, there yeah. are different things that add texture. But if we're only looking at that um, at that volume, right. we don't really know a whole lot other than it's his. He wants it back. He's evil. And, and yeah. that's kind of the way he's painted. As opposed to Game of Thrones, where you've got like explicit scenes with the main characters, right. you know, explicitly laying out what they want. Explicit and why in they Game want. of Thrones go hand in hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah, for I think, real. 
Lord of the Rings is more old fashioned, kind of a fairy tale type thing where, you know, evil was evil and good was good just because they were. And I don't think Sauron really had any kind of a real personal motivation more than that. But, yeah. but there's also that he's kind of hidden, sort of like the shark in Jaws. They yeah. couldn't get the Jaws shark to work, so they couldn't really film it. They had to figure out how to film it without the, the shark present on scene. And in the same way, like Tolkien doesn't have Sauron like under the camera as much as, as his other characters, like in, in focus detail. Um, so, so are you asking like more scary? Yeah, it does. It, it yeah. works really well in Jaws that it's not laid out. And it's the same thing with like Star Wars with the mitochlorians. Is that the right word? Okay. It's yeah, yeah. They're not spelled out and explained in four, five and six um, yeah, because with adding to the mystery. <laughs> Yeah, they didn't exist yet. <laughs> they were, they were mm. stupid. <laughs> yeah, but then they spelled it out in in the the forces of blood market. disease. <laughs> ah. Um. So, so are you asking, like, could that work to have a villain that's not as explicitly spelled out? I, I had I had Terry Brooks on on the show with me a couple of years ago, and we were talking about fantasy and and the way. Um, that story structure has changed. And, and he said in his first book, uh, the sword of Shannara that nothing happens in that book for 150 pages. There's a lot of, there's a lot of setup. There's a lot of texture that's kind of being painted and you get to know some characters, but nothing happens. And, and he said, you absolutely could not publish that book today because readers just wouldn't stand for the fact that they have to read 150 pages before anything happens. Um, by the same token, um, would readers settle for, knowing that there's this um, uh, kind of shadowy bad guy in the background. And he, Not and without he, somebody in the foreground. You're going to have to have another villain like the henchman or the right arm of the bad guy, somebody you can focus your hatred on that's present. And, and that's kind of the role that Saruman uh, yeah. Yeah. fulfills in, in mm -hmm. Lord of the Rings. So and maybe – yeah, so so maybe Tolkien did that already, and and yeah, so that that kind of answers that question. Yeah, it, it can oh, depend yeah. on the book and can depend yeah. on the story, but I will say like you gotta Jax's, have someone to focus on. Yeah, there's got to be somebody who's right there that you can be afraid of, not somebody off in the distance that may come at some point. Right. You know. Yeah. Well, my um, my character in in the book that I'm working on for this challenge, um, Stu Remington is uh, he he was the, the character from a book that I wrote earlier called Writer's Block. And and he is uh, but this is about 20 years in the past almost. And he's just now he he's a, a budding novelist. He's he's writing a bunch, but he hasn't quite broken in yet, but he's just right on. He, he's right on the the verge of of cracking the code, as it were, and um, and he's writing mystery thriller ish kind of adventure novels, and um, and a murder happens in his little neighborhood, and he kind of gets sucked into that world, and so the the murder that that's going on is going to be the external motivation for him, but then um, I, I'm working on what what his internal motivation will be. And, 
And I've, I've taken this time to kind of work on more of Stu's backstory that won't necessarily come into the novel. I haven't really decided how much of that to bring in other than just to kind of shape his character. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he is, uh, he's a, he's a guy that's not exactly sure of himself. He's not the man that he wants to be. And, um, not had a lot of um, reason to to be challenged a lot in his life, and and so this kind of getting involved in in this process of this helping solve this murder um, is going to build his confidence and to help him find his place in the world and to settle some old doubts that he has because of a bad relationship he had with his father and, you know, different stuff like that. But um, the, the external motivation is going to um, try to build his internal motivation, if that makes sense. So that's kind of what I'm, what I'm thinking about for him. Um, Yeah. Well, often with these detective stories, you have all the different kinds of conflicts going on. You definitely have that murderer out there. And he might murder again, particularly the closer you get to finding him, the more you become a danger and a threat to him. And we already know what he does with threats, right? He, he kills them and he's going right. to, he might kill you to, to stay secret, right? Um, so you have that man versus man conflict. You might have man versus environment, Um uh, you know, if you've got like a, a cursed woods coming after you, cursed hut, yeah. But it could be the desert sun or whatever. Um, you have man versus man. So there could be other characters in the town or like an ex or something that your main character could be at conflict with. Um, man versus society is another one. So that that town itself, he might not just he just might not fit in. Or uh, there could be something about him. He's an alcoholic or, or something that puts him at odds with his family, puts him at odds with the people around him. And then there's man versus self. So those old demons kind of come up, coming up again. So uh, for me, when I kind of get stuck in my plotting and I don't know what could happen next, or I don't know what else there is or why, I can run through those different kinds of conflicts. And maybe one of them will give me an idea. Okay, so in this chapter, where am I at in that man versus self-conflict? How, how are those demons going to influence my character's choices and kind of come back to bite him? Or what does he need to overcome to get to the next step? Gotcha. I'd, yeah, yeah. Those, those are – yeah, those, those are things I'm, I'm going to be working through the next few days. I, I want to yeah. make sure that I have his, his motivation – kind of nailed down and and what is going to be the the external factors that make him in you know I, I know where I want him to be at the end. Right. So what's going to motivate him to get to that point? Yes. Um Rick as a writer who used to be a pantser and is now a plotter, um does did switching to being a plotter um help you to define your characters uh, more firmly than than kind of discovering who they are as the as the story unfolds. No, no, no I don't think I don't think it did. Honestly, if there was one thing that I really enjoyed about <clears throat> being a pantser, yeah, it was. I think it let me 
get deeper into the minds of the characters because the only thing that guided me, there wasn't any plot behind it. The only thing that guided me from minute to minute was what would this character do in this situation? And uh, I, I know that being a, when I was a pantser, I had so many more twists and turns to uh, who the bad guys were and what their plan was because I didn't know what it was at the time. I just made it up as I went along. And when the when the time came that like it'd be really cool, if this was what was going on. I thought, well, that that's what's going on. <laughs> so I, I introduced in, in one of my one of my the third book in a trilogy. I introduced a minor character half as a joke in the beginning of the third book, and by the end, it, it turned out he was behind everything that had gone on in the first two books and was wow. Joke, joke on you. <laughs> Whoa. That's so, a cool thing to find out as a as an author. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it was neat, but you know, I, I couldn't afford to take a year or fourteen months to write a book anymore. So, uh, yeah, touche, touche. Um, Rick, do you when you're when you're writing a series, or maybe when you're beginning a new series, um, do you do you plan just the book you're writing on? Do you have a an overarching plan for the whole series? And and if so, if you know where this series is going, as opposed to just this chapter in the series, this book, um, is there a grand motivation that you're working toward? Uh, it depends on the series. Most of the time, I have an arc planned out. And if it's three or four books, whatever, I have that story arc. I don't have like every book outlined, but I have like a synopsis of what, all the books are going to be about either if it's three or four. I think the the most I ever did at once was six. Um, that's for wholesale slaughter. But for the most part, I, I plan by story arc. And once that story arc is getting towards the end, I'll try to figure out another one if it's going to continue. Because you can't really go too far out and build too much too soon. It's not going to pay off for a long time because you never know if. I mean, you've got three books, and if it doesn't sell, that may be all you have. <laughs> right. True. True. You've got to make sure at the end of the three books that the story's wrapped up enough that people can enjoy it without waiting for a you know another three books that may not come. Yeah. True. True. So, Lauren, um, it's about time to get cracking on it. Mm. Are, are, do you feel like your planning process has gotten you to the point that you wanted it to this month? Yeah, well, before today, when I started looking at the you know the motivations and of my characters, and especially the villain, um, and figuring out what the villain's story was, um, I would have told you uh, the excitement it's rising, and it feels suspiciously like panic. <laughs> <laughs> but after having figured stuff out, um, it's, uh, it's it's more it's more like excitement. It's, I'm, I'm you know, it's there I'm feeling go. a little more comfortable. Yeah, getting there, working on it. Well, I'll tell you what, taking this month to plan has has really changed the story that I was going to tell. Um, yeah. I, I think if I would have just hit the ground running from where I thought I was a month ago to where I think I am now, mm. it's, it's a very different book. Um, and I don't know if that's, you know, I, I don't know how how good or bad that is. It, it's just it's just the reality of it, you know, um, 
and maybe I would have discovered the same things in the writing. Um, I, I might would have just come to it organically. Um, but but I, I do know that the the writing I will do this week will be very different from the writing I would have done a month ago, mm. so, mm-hmm. which is which is a funny thing about about taking your time and planning um, because it's it's nothing that I would have planned before. Yeah. It's, it's funny that way. Yeah. 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 Well, you've got a complicated plot, you know, with the with the murder mystery and trying to lay down. Um, extra little side plots and those red herrings and get put the clues down. That takes a lot of like thinking through did ahead of do, time. Did you do what I hear people often do with murder mysteries, Hank, where you come up with the murderer and how they did it first and work your way backwards? Yes. hundred percent. I, and as a matter of fact, um, I had a, a scene that I had written a couple of years ago for, for a book, um, that I thought that I might write one day, but I didn't really know where it fit in. It was, it was a flashback scene. Um, and it, I, re- I just really didn't know where it fit, but I, but I held on to it. You know, I saved it in a folder. And as I have been thinking over the story and going through all of my planning process this month, I realized that that was my murderer. And, and this flashback scene was the, the thing that motivated him um, all along, and wow. and I, I dragged that into my plan, and it just fit perfectly. I was like, "That's it. That's that's why I've been holding on to this all this time." And, and it just it unlocked so many things that. Uh, so yeah, um, it's crazy. But but yes, to answer your question, Rick, one hundred percent. I knew, I I I had this other story. I had the story of my protagonist. Um, but you need you need this driving force, you know, to bring your, your protagonist into. And, and yeah, I, I, I know the murder. I know why it happens. I know who it happens to. I know who it happens from. And and I know the motivation for, you know, for why the murder happens. Now I've got to figure out how to take my good guy and weave him. Mm-hmm. You got to have a, have a, a uh, false suspect. Mm. Up till the very end, he believes is the guy. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and I, I've got a, I've got a great one. Um, I've caught myself watching people like in my neighborhood and stuff, ah. and you know, seeing little quirky <laughs> they, things that neighbors do. Have they yeah. caught you watching them yet? <laughs> uh, oh yeah, oh yeah. I've, I've got this one neighbor who who just does quirky things around the edge of his property all the time, and oh, wow. he is one hundred percent going to be a red herring. And, and <laughs> he's nice. going to be the, the one everyone suspects is up to something. Are yeah. you going to give him a copy of your book when you're done? Yes. Oh. Yes. yes, I will. Nice. <laughs> anyway, well, that is that is our time for tonight, Lauren. I'm excited to see what you're coming up with, and um, me too. When when we meet again next week, we will have we have we'll have begun. The drafting and uh and we'll talk about how that's going um rick um you are working on uh drop trooper 11 yes nice how much longer do you have on the the drafting of that well i it'll be done by the end of the month so another what is today <laughs> uh, 26th it's another five days or so i should be done nice 
How, how many words a day are you cranking on this series? Uh, 3,000. Yeah, you're a machine. That's a, 3,000 is a, is a low day for Rick. That's, it's, it's, I decided to take it easy this month. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Rick, thank you for joining us tonight. I really appreciate you stepping in and, and sharing some of your storytelling wisdom with us. Uh, Lauren, we'll see you next week. And hopefully our other three participants will be back next week. Everybody just had stuff that just happens, you know, stuff happens. Life. And uh, but we will see you next Wednesday evening. Uh, go to storycraft.cafe. Join up. It's free. Join the community of writers over there and uh, come tell us about the story that you're telling. We can't wait to hear all about it. Until next time, we'll see you guys. Night. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk to authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the Storycraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. The Storycraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool should not be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at dabblewriter.com and start your free trial today. Thanks for listening.